Zolife Vest is a proud sponsor of Cardio Nerds. New data from 96,000 real-world patients show advanced arrhythmia discrimination technology was associated with a significant reduction in false alarms. See how these results may improve your patient's experience at lifevesttechnology.com. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated Cardio Nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Josh Safe, um, and I brought Sumitha Vaikunth with me down from the University of Pennsylvania. And we're walking along the Battery in Charleston, South Carolina. We really wanted to escape the winter. It's been really long, and Charleston has advertised some great fried seafood and some great cardiology cases. And so we heard about a great one from THD 2022 through our Cardio Nerds colleagues about one that was MUSC. And so we're joined today by Anika, Peyton, and Shang, who are going to talk to us about a congenital cardiology case um, that was brought to their attention recently that I think we all can learn from. Hi, I'm Anika. I'm from Raleigh by way of Bangladesh and went to UNC Chapel Hill for undergrad and then East Carolina for medical school. I did my pediatrics residency at the University of Louisville and pediatric cardiology fellowship at Penn State. I'm currently a second year ACHD fellow at MUSC, and I'll be joining a pediatric cardiology ACHD practice in Tampa after graduation. And I'm just so excited that CardioNerds is highlighting an ACHD case. Hi everybody, I'm Peyton. I'm originally from upstate New York and I went to UNC Chapel Hill for undergrad as well. Uh, before med school, I worked for a health nonprofit in Peru and then in behavioral cardiology research at Duke. Wound up at Emory in Atlanta for med school, met my now husband, and we couples matched into medicine at Duke. Uh, and then cards and GI uh, at MUSC. And I'm going to be staying here for an interventional year. I'm interested in adult congenital and interventional structural cardiology, and I've been really lucky to wind up at institutions uh, with fantastic mentors in these fields, both at Duke and now at MUSC. Hi everyone, my name is Shang Fu. I grew up in Cincinnati and bounced my way around the Midwest for a bit before ending up at MUSC for Advanced Heart Failure Fellowship, which I completed last year. And I'm currently on faculty at University of Louisville for Advanced Heart Failure. Thrilled to be able to present one of the most memorable cases that we saw last year that highlights a lot of the opportunities and challenges that exist in the adult general space. You know, Shane, I think you said that actually really well. And I, you know, I can tell just from talking to everybody here, there's a diverse set of backgrounds that have all come together to, you know, talk about this, um, like what I know to be a really interesting case. So I, I'm really excited to, uh, to hear more about it. Awesome. So I could get started with a little bit of background. Uh, so our patient is a 39-year-old woman with a past history of detransposition of the great arteries, and she had prior history of balloon atrial septostomy in the first week of life, and then a mustard atrial switch repair within the first year of her life. And she's coming in with three weeks of abdominal fullness, exertional dyspnea, orthopnea, and nausea. Um, and in addition to the history of DTGA with mustard repair, she also is known to have moderate systemic RV dysfunction and moderate LPA stenosis. Her home medications coming in are enalapril 20 twice a day, Lasix 40 twice a day, and Spiro 25. She's a never smoker, doesn't drink or use other drugs. Um, she's engaged and lives at home with her partner and her 15-year-old son from a previous relationship. Wow, that's that's a lot of history. Um, I think just kind of saying in the, the adult congenital heart disease world, you know, we found out, you know, what happened to this patient within their first week of life with the balloon atrial septostomy. There's a lot of good information about sort of, you know, her early adulthood. It sounds like she was able to tolerate a pregnancy um, in the context of her congenital heart disease. I don't know how impaired her systemic right ventricular function was at that point. But, you know, we learned a lot about this patient and sort of what their initial steps were and what their current physiology is. Now that we have a bit of background on our patient, we can pause to discuss the natural history of congenital heart disease. It ranges from death in the first few days of life to decades without symptoms. And treatment advances have thankfully prolonged the lives of our congenital patients, but they still have sequelae from surgical interventions and structures that are not morphologically normal. And heart failure is something that many of our patients experience, and their symptoms can be more subtle than in non-congenital patients especially exercise and tolerance. 
Many of these patients have below average capacity from childhood and were never able to keep up with people their age and subsequently are less likely to notice a decline, especially if it's gradual. They also frequently have had chronic palpitations and eventually learn to ignore them and accept them as routine. That's why it's important to periodically obtain objective data, such as cardiopulmonary stress test for exercise capacity and Holter monitors for arrhythmia burden. Also, many of these patients look much better than their echoes or other studies, making it important to look at both objective data and the symptom burden of our patient when making treatment decisions. Nanika, I think that was really well said. As Peyton was telling us, this story goes way back to the beginning. Uh, This was diagnosed, I don't know if it was diagnosed prenatally, postnatally. We're a little bit better about diagnosing things prenatally now. But there's something to be said about experiencing pathology from the very beginning and sort of understanding what your your own baseline is. I think, you know, I, I think about what my own baseline is when I'm, you know, on an ICU month in terms of going to the gym and when I'm not on an ICU month and going to the gym. You know, but I think that our patients, it's something that's very uh, real and something that we have to try and tease out in every encounter. I don't know. Do you, how do you feel about that, Sumit? Yeah, I think that uh, the points that were made are very salient, uh, that there is an accommodation that patients have to their physiology over time. And so they can feel uh, something that's normal, even though when we look at some of the objective uh, data that was mentioned, which may not be normal. And so having that in mind, as well as how the patient is feeling, helps us to determine what the best treatment strategies are for that patient. No, so I think at this point, yeah, like I'm, I'm really curious about physical exam. You know, this patient, it's, you know, going to be difficult to tell like what type of clinical decline they might be experiencing or, you know, what their baseline actually is and what we're seeing now. So I think this is a point where I'd be very interested in hearing about some, um, some physical exam findings. Totally. Yeah. So she came in and actually was not super distressed appearing, which kind of you know, goes back to what Anika was saying about uh, needing to take your objective data and your clinical picture all together in context. So when she came in, she was slightly tachycardic. Heart rate was 102. She was hypotensive to 80 over 62. And she was actually satting appropriately on room air, breathing about 21 times per minute. Again, not really in significant distress. Um, she had a regular rhythm with a two out of six hole systolic murmur on her cardiac exam. Pulmonary exam, though, had diffuse rowels. Um, her abdomen was pretty distended, though without a fluid wave, and lower extremities were notable for two-plus pitting edema. Her chemistry uh, had a sodium of 122. Potassium was normal. Bicarb was normal. BUN, 27, and creatinine of 1.1. Her AST and ALT were 65 and 98, respectively. Alclass was 54. Billy was 2.3, normal calcium, mag, protein, and albumin. Her white count was normal, hemoglobin 13.7, and platelets around 240. And her INR was 1.43. We checked a high-sensitivity troponin, which was 23. Her BMP was 940, and her lactate was a little bit up at 2.5. We got a chest x-ray, and she actually had had one just a week prior. So in comparison to that, she actually had worsening Bilateral pleural fusions and adjacent atelectasis happen to be left greater than right. So overall, uh, we're looking at a 39-year-old female with DTGA with a mustard repair in infancy, known RV dysfunction, coming in with decompensated heart failure, evidence of malperfusion, concerning for cardiogenic shock. You know, the thing that I'll say is that that's sort of, you know, it's difficult to tell the time course with these types of things in terms of, you know, how this patient is presenting. That sodium being 122, I imagine it didn't become like that overnight. I imagine that was a very gradual decline that occurred over time that she was probably adapting and kind of subconsciously limiting herself, um, you know, more and more until she probably came into this point. You know, that's, that's the thought that I would have. And that, you know, the fact that she's so young, you know, a lactate of 2.5 is probably better tolerated than somebody who is 39 than somebody who is 79. And so that's just kind of something that I keep in mind looking at some of the objective data. The holosystolic murmur is something that I, you know, think about in the context of uh, a systemic right ventricle is, you know, what's, uh, what's worse than, you know, really bad systemic right ventricular function is really bad systemic right ventricular function and 
really bad systemic AV valve regurgitation, or in this case, tricuspid regurgitation. Um, so those are things that kind of rise to the top in my mind, kind of listening through the data presented so far. How about you, Sumit? Yeah, I agree, Josh, that uh, the sodium um, definitely jumped out, the value that it was. And the physical exam, that's exactly what I would think about too, um, with the two out of six holosystolic murmur, um, tricuspid regurgitation. And it's not necessarily known uh, in terms of the chicken or the egg, uh, what is the first part, but both tricuspid regurgitation and systemic right ventricular function go together and feed off each other to to cause worsening of each one of those. Um, and so then looking at the rest of the physical exam with the edema, the abdominal distension, definitely I agree with the concern for, and, and the lactate concern for uh, cardiogenic shock and heart failure. Thanks, Amit. So, you know, the other thing that I know about um, our patients uh, that have had um, atrial switch procedures, which essentially involves a lot of sort of stitches and, and sort of redirecting of flow, baffling is what we say in the congenital world, is there's a lot of potential for atrial scarring. Um, and with atrial scarring, I always see an increase in the potential for atrial arrhythmias. Now, this patient had a low-grade tachycardia, which may be sort of a hemodynamic stress, but also in sort of this context, I'd be worried about an arrhythmia. So, I'm wondering if you guys got an EKG pretty quickly and what that showed. Yeah, so EKG was definitely part of our next steps. And her showed a regular tachycardia with right bundle branch pattern. And looking at her telemetry, we noticed that she was at a fixed rate and appeared to be in an atrial tachycardia, most likely intraatrial reentrant tachycardia or IART. And as Josh touched on, all our ACHD patients are at increased risk of arrhythmias. With respect to atrial arrhythmias, interatrial reentrant tachycardia is common, and it can be driven either by the classic cabotricuspid isthmus mechanism or by scar and fibrosis, as we would see in our patient with a mustard. With respect to the ventricle, right bundle branch block is typical and expected on EKGs of patients who underwent ventriculotomies such as tetralogy of flow repairs or arterial switch patients. And scar tissue in the ventricle can act as a substrate for reentrant ventricular tachycardia. And ventricular dilation and dysfunction due to their congenital lesion increases their risk of polymorphic VT and VF. And this is particularly important because ventricular arrhythmias are a major contributor to sudden death in ACHD patients. However, risk stratification is difficult because of the heterogeneity of the defects our patients present with. You know, I, I think that was a great summary, Anika. And, you know, I think that something that also comes to my mind with patients who have systemic right ventricles is there is an increasing body of knowledge about pacing for heart failure associated diagnoses and potentially the, you know, the therapeutic benefit of pacing with CRT or bundle pacing. This patient, you know, with the atrial switch, there are, you know, specific challenges that we see when, um, not to say that this patient necessarily has AV conduction issues or anything along those lines, but we do actually see a good number of these patients, given the arrhythmia histories, given the EP issues, everything along those lines, they do require devices. And so that's actually, you know, an interesting aspect of multidisciplinary care in these situations. And we actually, in the uh, ACHD series, have a um, episode focused on this particular topic for this reason. To me, I mean, any other thoughts about sort of EP problems in these situations? Yeah, I think one, I agree with everything that was said so far. And just one thing, if you look at this patient and you see, as, as you mentioned, Josh and Monique, that heart rate of 102, you might not think about uh, an atrial arrhythmia, but just knowing that history of the surgical scar um, from the atrial switch procedure, that should raise your antennas up for even having this type of heart rate, which is relatively low they could still be in an atrial arrhythmia as you uh, guys found. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely important point. You have to definitely have a high index of suspicion. So, you know, I think at this point we're, we're concerned about an arrhythmia and we have a murmur on exam. One of the great things about the congenital world is typically a very interesting visual. So I'm curious about, you know, at this point were you guys pursuing an echocardiogram? What did you see? Kind of cut into the chase in terms of getting a sense of what's going on. That's what I would be thinking next. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we really wanted to get some more data uh, because as we've sort of seen 
a lot of the numbers that we're seeing and the vitals that we're seeing are kind of discrepant with what she looks like just from the door. So when we got our initial uh, surface echo, we got a better idea of her biventricular function. Um, and we noticed that her morphologic LV, which is the subpulmonic position for her, was dilated compared to her prior studies. And there was moderate to severe global dysfunction of that ventricle. And her systemic morphologic right ventricle was also noted to have moderate to severely reduced function. And there was moderate systemic tricuspid valve regurgitation present, as we alluded to earlier with the physical exam finding. In an echocardiogram in somebody who has an atrial switch with detransposition, you know, systemic right ventricular function, the ventricle doesn't look like a typical RV as you would see in sort of a traditional anatomy to ventricle type situation. We do expect remodeling. We do expect some level of dilation. Obviously, the less, the better, et cetera, et cetera. But we do understand that ventricle is undertaking a certain amount of stress. The subpulmonic left ventricle should be having an easy time. It's designed to pump to a systemic circulation and instead it only has to pump against the pulmonary vascular resistance. So I'm very happy when I'm in clinic and I see subpulmonic left ventricles that are, you know, hyperdynamic. We even, you know, sometimes say that we see SAM associated with these types of anatomies because there's just, you know, the LV has no issue contracting against that level of resistance. The fact that this left ventricle is dysfunctional is concerning to me and you know, could potentially represent a number of different pathologies. So I'm very eager to get a sense of hemodynamics. So that's kind of QP to QS and see whether or not there's a significant shunt at play to see, you know, whether or not we can get a sense of where a primary sort of uh, pathology might be causing the insult that is creating this current presentation. Yeah. So that was exactly where we headed next with a right heart cath uh, to kind of get a better idea of her hemodynamics. So Again, she was hypotensive to 87 over 65 at the time of our study. Uh, we got a CVP uh, measuring at 22 millimeters of mercury. Her pressures in the subpulmonic LV were 70 over 25 and, and the PA 70 over 39 with a mean of 48. Uh, her wedge was 38 millimeters of mercury. And her output and index uh, by thermodilution were 2.24 and 1.31. Her PBR was 4.5 Woods units. And the QP to QS was one. All right. So thanks, guys, for that information. That's a lot of um, really important data that we just went through. And in our world, there really is nothing like uh, getting hemodynamics from a cardiac catheterization to get better understanding of the physiology. So what I have learned is that we have a profoundly, we have profoundly elevated intracardiac pressures globally with a wedge of 38, elevated PA pressures, and a CVP of 22. Another important piece that I learned is that the QP to QS is one. And so I can't say that I necessarily have a significant shunt due to a baffle defect or something along those lines that would be driving subpulmonic LV dysfunction or dilation or anything along those lines. The SVR is also really elevated. And so putting this all together, I'm really concerned about our systemic RV and uh, whether or not it's able to meet the load that it's being asked to carry given that it wasn't designed to do so in the first place, but here we are. I don't know. Any other thoughts on the hemodynamics of me? Uh, yeah, Josh, I agree with your interpretation. I think that um, going back to what we were talking about with the echocardiogram, and when you see that dilated subpulmonic LV, there's two main uh, differentials that come to my mind, and I think you alluded to them both. One is a baffle leak, and the other one would be pulmonary hypertension. And so we see that uh, on this cast with the post-capillary pulmonary hypertension with that wedge at 38. Um, and so I think one of the big things uh, in this patient population with this the surgical palliation is that we see restrictive filling of those atrial baffles leading to diastolic dysfunction and decreased compliance of those baffles over time. And I think uh, we're getting some hint of that on our cath data here. All right, guys. So we're in a situation, we got a really sick patient atrial switch is a systemic RV. I think we got a lot of the data that we can get. What do we do now? What was the discussion and how did you guys move forward? Yeah, that's absolutely 
Uh, right. Her hemodynamics were consistent with, like you said, severe elevated biometricular filling pressures and a low index confirmed kind of our suspicion that she was in cardiogenic shock. And so she was started on high dose IV inotropes, but because of her systemic blood pressure being so low, we thought she needed to escalate to some sort of temporary mechanical circulatory support. Now in our, in the ACHD patients where their ventricles are, are different from kind of conventional ventricles, uh, a lot of the kind of trans aortic devices such as Impella are, are difficult to navigate. We thought she could get by with an intraaortic balloon pump that also avoided kind of the complex anatomy inside the heart. And so she had an intraaortic balloon pump placed to aid in organ perfusion and help assist diuresis and get her out of shock. By this point, her liver enzymes and renal function had started to worsen a little bit. And after a few days on the balloon pump, uh, those did seem to normalize and so we could rescue her out of shock. And so I and the rest of the advanced heart failure team got involved and we started an advanced therapies evaluation for her for transplant. Well, thanks, Shane. Yeah, no, that, that sounds like, a, you know, a very appropriate action. You know, if we're, you know, struggling with end organ perfusion and we're struggling with, um, with that despite inotropes, I definitely think that's where my mind would have gone with mechanical circulatory support. And I think you're right to say that, you know, something that doesn't necessarily have to be intracardiac as a temporary device in the context of a systemic right ventricle is a less complicated proposition. You know, even though it's less support, you may not struggle with, um, with some of the fact that, uh, you will be actually dealing with a systemic right ventricle as opposed to a systemic left ventricle. And so moving forward with, uh, you know, mechanical circulatory support, a transplant workup on the horizon. What does that look like for you guys um, getting to know this patient? What were the considerations that you guys were thinking through as you were evaluating her for those things? Yeah. So the, the evaluation for transplant is obviously involves a lot of different facets. Uh, I would say a big part is social work. And in her case, she had no significant social barriers. She had no caregiver concerns. She had a great family. Uh, some of it involves whether or not how quickly you can get a donor organ or so what are the barriers to how big the donor pool is for a patient. So in that, in that respect, we look at her blood type, which is a blood type O. It's a, the most common blood type. So there's a lot of other patients on the wait list that she would compete against. So the fact that she's uh, a woman with a prior pregnancy as well as prior cardiac surgeries that you know, it's a little unclear if she's received blood products at the time. We always get concerned about whether or not there have been, uh, that her body has developed antibodies, uh, what we call sensitization. We run uh, a panel to see if there's any antibodies in this patient, and she actually came back with 0% antibodies. So that was good. And other kind of smaller factors, such as weight and social habits, she didn't really have any concerns for those either. I would say at this point, Having gone through kind of all the testing and so forth, uh, I think the transplant and, and bad teams, uh, advanced heart failure teams had some concerns of her. She had a complex congenital anatomy. This would be a reduced sternotomy for her uh, since she's had prior cardiac surgeries before. And she was, although stabilized, still in a bit of a shock state. And so taking someone in, to the operating room for a major heart surgery when the end organs are just getting over this acute injury is always kind of a higher risk endeavor. For transplant specifically, throughout this case, she had some mildly elevated liver enzymes and her bilirubin as well also kind of hung around the two to four range. So I think we also were concerned about her liver anatomy as far as her candidacy for isolated heart transplant. And then uh, finally, her pulmonary vascular resistance initially was 4.5. Uh, wood units, which did come down some with the balloon pump and with diuretics and so forth and with unloading. But it was something that, that we were careful to, to look out for, especially since we knew about her known uh, left pulmonary artery stenosis, which is something that probably wouldn't be fixed at the time of transplant. All in all, there were some of the, there were a lot of positive discoveries during her evaluation, but still some concerns about her ability to safely tolerate something like a heart transplant. Thanks for that summary, Shang. And as someone who was listening to the transplant discussion, an interesting point for me was that during that discussion, several people mentioned her history of multiple previous sternotomies as part of her high risk. This obviously didn't match the history that we had from seeing her beforehand. 
But when asked by the CT surgery team how many quote-unquote open-heart surgeries she had, she told them three. So the ACHD team, we went back to ask her for more details. And in getting some more history from her, we realized one of those surgeries was actually a cath when she described it. Also on physical exam, in addition to her sternotomy scar, she had a lateral thoracotomy scar, accounting for her other open-heart surgery and leaving us with one sternotomy. I think this misunderstanding highlights how important it is to be extra specific when asking ACHD patients their history, as most of them were babies when they had these surgeries and obviously don't remember them. And as they grow older, most of them are told this history by their parents, who are typically lay people and may not have a full understanding of the complex anatomy and repairs their children had and the vocabulary to express that history. And In these cases, the best case scenario is when you have medical records to refer to, but good luck getting an op note from 1985. I don't think I could have said that better myself. There was no EMR, to my knowledge, in 1985 that I have been able to glean accurate op reports from. So it's a huge challenge. And um, and I'm glad that you guys were able to get that history because that definitely is a major consideration for the surgeons. So one thing that potentially raises a concern is hepatic dysfunction. She had this sort of stable, low-level hyperbilirubinemia. She had some mild transaminitis. And I know that in the context of cardiac surgery, associated coagulopathy, et cetera, et cetera, there's typically a low threshold to evaluate the liver. Was that something that you guys thought about doing? Yeah, absolutely. The liver remains certainly an area of concern uh, with regards to this patient. So we did consult our hepatology team. And I think their clinical suspicion was that this was probably longstanding congestive hepatopathy. Uh, but due to kind of the high risk endeavors that we were considering uh, at the time, they did perform a liver biopsy for this patient, which demonstrated stage three bridging fibrosis, kind of the stage right under cirrhosis. And so at this point, you know, per our discussion and per our institutional guidelines, we felt that she would not make a very good isolated heart transplant candidate. uh, And there could be a consideration for heart liver. Although uh, we kind of discussed this case also with several other institutions in our region and everyone kind of thought between the liver being the way it is between some of this pulmonary hypertension, being that she still depended on a balloon pump, uh, all in all, She's just, it seemed like she was going to be a fairly high risk case for uh, a combined heart liver transplant or isolated heart transplant. You know, I'll, I'll tell you in general heart disease, this is something that we look at pretty intensely in that like a lot of our patients have right-sided issues um, and we commonly encounter hepatopathies as a comorbidity. And there's a lot of debate in our community about whether or not to pursue um heart alone or combined heart liver transplants in certain settings, more in the single ventricle population. But I definitely understand sort of um, hesitancy associated with the discovered hepatopathy once there is objective information discovered. And so that leaves us, if we're thinking about advanced therapies, I imagine you guys talked about ways to support her otherwise. Yeah. So we, uh, in the context of kind of all of our high risk features for transplant, we had a discussion with the patient and decided to proceed with a HeartMate 3 LVAD implantation into her systemic right ventricle. Uh, so to briefly talk about this, uh, the HeartMate 3, it's a centrifugal LVAD. It's designed for the left ventricle. It has a small inflow cannula that tends to protrude into the left ventricle or, or the ventricle and a magnetically levitated motor that sits adjacent to the epicardium on the outside surface. Now, the length of the inflow cannula is generally not as much of an issue when it's implanted into the left ventricle, as it tends to be more oval-shaped and has a thicker myocardium that allows for a more stable setting of the device. The pump will then be at the apex of the heart, which aligns fairly well with the apex of the left ventricle. In our patient, even though the right ventricle, the systemic right ventricle has hypertrophied and become muscular and remodeled, it's still an anterior structure that maintains some of its kind of crescentic shape as opposed to the oval shape of the left ventricle. Furthermore, the patient's systemic right ventricle, uh, due to the remodeling and the hypertrophy, has a lot of different trabeculations uh, and muscle bundles that, if left alone, could impede flow into the inflow cannula. And so when the, when the patient went for surgery, 
uh, the surgeons, which was actually a combined team between our congenital heart surgeon, a, a pediatric surgeon, as well as our adult mechanical circulatory support surgeon. They had uh, a challenge at first in getting into the chest, just due to the number of adhesions from the reduced anatomy. But then once they got down to the heart, uh, they actually had to resect uh, a fair bit of muscle uh, from inside the systemic right ventricle just to be able to seat uh, the device in a safe manner. After a fairly long case, the patient came off bypass and seemed to actually do re- quite well. Uh, she was only on modest doses of inotropes and vasopressors, and uh, at least based on uh, transesophageal echo in the case, seemed to have fairly good cannula position. Um, yes. Yeah, so, Shang, the issues you bring up, I think, are issues that we see with placing this uh, support device that's made for the left ventricle into the systemic right ventricle. And certainly the position of the inflow cannula um, is of utmost importance and removal of trabeculations that can obstruct the inflow cannula um, is something that is an important consideration. And I also thought it was great that at your center, you had the collaboration between the pediatric and adult cardiothoracic surgeons. Um, in this case, I think that's another really important feature to have the expertise of both of the different specialties coming together uh, in a challenging case like this. Um, some of the other issues that are sometimes uh, dealt with in this case, as was mentioned before, there's significant tricuspid uh, regurgitation. And sometimes at certain centers, they might repair or replace a tricuspid valve concomitantly with the bad placement. So I think that the issues you bring up are important and I'd like to see how how the how else the patient did. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I think um, Cheng, you, you know, nailed a lot of the sort of important considerations. And I know that there are a number of people who are trying to create three D models of envisioning like how to fit the inflow cannula into the RV and what will be involved and what they will have to resect. Just because uh, one of the distinguishing features between an RV and an LV, LV, you have a smooth septum, it's bullet shaped, you know makes sense in the design. Just like you said, Shane, if you're trying to carve through and redefine anatomy to make something conducive, it can be really challenging. Yeah. So postoperatively, our patient recovered well. She was extubated on post-op day one. She did remain on some low-dose inotropes for several days, but transferred to step down on post-op day seven, and then was actually discharged on post-op day 14. Um, At her four-week follow-up visit, though, she came in uh, with volume overload and hypoxic respiratory failure, and she was admitted to the hospital. We did a surface echo and again saw that moderate tricuspid valve regurgitation, the systemic AV valve, and compared to the previous study, a more dilated and severely dysfunctional LV. We got another right heart cath and found a CVP of 20. A PA of 50 over 25 with a mean of 35, a wedge of 27. Her PA sat was 45.5% and her uh, output and index by thermodilution were 3 and 1.91. Based on our right heart cath, she was started on high-dose IV diuretics for fluid removal, um, but still had persistent pulmonary edema and hypoxia. And she was having nearly continuous suction events with associated ventricular arrhythmias. And that was really uh, preventing appropriate hemodynamic support for her. Yeah, Peyton, that's absolutely true. So when a LVAD, when the heart rate is implanted into a, a left ventricle, the inflow cannula is generally positioned parallel to the walls of the left ventricle. And so that means that the pump can function relatively well in a range of ventricular sizes as the LV dilates or shrinks. Uh, kind of from side to side. And what, meanwhile, the pump cannula still maintains a direction that's oriented towards the mitral valve. In our patient's case, when we repeated an ultrasound, an echocardiogram for her when she came back in, as well as a repeat CT imaging to kind of look at where the cannula was, her systemic right ventricle had dilated more. And that had caused the inflow cannula to be rotated to the point of nearly being perpendicular to the septo. And then this had resulted then in very, as you mentioned, frequent suction events because the cannula essentially abuts the septum 
and which then in turn tickles the myocardium and causes ventricular arrhythmias, leading the patient to be undersupported as the, the LVAD doesn't seem to work, leading to worsening ventricular dilation and causing more rotation. And so we felt that this had turned into a cycle that it was going to be very difficult to get the patient out of because it became an anatomic challenge at this point. And so after a fairly prolonged hospital stay, uh, where we tried to diurese her and tried to support her with inotropes, uh, a goals of care discussion was had with the patient and, and her family that led to ultimately withdrawal of care and the patient unfortunately passed away. You know, I, I think you guys, you know, did a heroic job trying to support this patient through, um, was a very, very, very difficult situation. Our atrial switch population is actually a very interesting population in that we are in some ways still learning their natural history in that the atrial switch procedure was in greater practice back in the 1970s. And then we started in the 1980s to transition to more of an arterial switch type of procedure. And so in some ways, you know, I think that the atrial switch uh, population is interesting with DTGA because we are now currently seeing many of their adult presentations. Um, but then we also, in all likelihood, and you know everything we know coming to be true, we will probably be seeing fewer of them um, come along. And so I think that these are cases that I learn a lot from because there are huge decisions to be made. The idea of implanting a durable VAD in a systemic right ventricle when there's trabeculations, there's papillary muscles on the interventricular septum, which is not something that you would see in the left ventricle. Um, there are going to be geometric changes. There's atrial baffling, which uh, themselves can become dysfunctional. There's a lot to take on. And so I think that, you know, there are a few things to focus on here. Number one is, you know, trying to recognize the hemodynamic failure and um, how to address that and when are thresholds to address that and what is like a healthy appearing person. And then the second piece is, you know, these are, this is also at the same time a 39-year-old person and the measures that we might be talking about could be extreme. And so, you know, I imagine those were very, very difficult concepts to bring forth for this case um, as you guys were dealing with it. Yeah, absolutely. This is a population of patients that's going to continue to grow and for a lot of them, we have um, sort of an inevitable downstream requirement for durable support or transplant. And we kind of know that that's where we're going, um, but we're still learning how to recognize that along the way and learning how to risk stratify those patients and figure out who's going to do well and sort of take on this really sort of high stakes situation of giving someone a heart or trying to work with maybe less than ideal anatomy with durable mechanical support. Uh, so I think from this case, we really learned the importance of early advanced therapies evaluation in these patients and supporting them to transplant when we're able to, especially when we have younger patients who, you know, for whom transplant would really be the ideal sort of option. But by the time they're being recognized as needing these advanced therapies, they maybe are too sick in other ways um, to really tolerate that. And we know that, you know, there's sort of this trepidation that still exists with transplanting congenital patients. Um, they spend more time waiting for transplant uh, when they are listed and have higher mortality rates uh, while they're waiting. And when we look at Interax registry data, basically paints a picture of a sicker cohort of people um, compared to their non-congenital, you know, counterparts um, and sort of raises the question of whether decision for supporting them was maybe delayed too long. Uh, so we need to be thinking about these interventions earlier before they get too sick. Obviously, temporary and durable MCS were developed to treat patients without congenital abnormalities and the mechanics of them kind of depend on a predictable anatomy just like we saw with our patient. And so sometimes they can kind of be seen as a last resort in ACHD, as opposed to an earlier proactive or maybe an aggressive intervention. Um, but this then makes it difficult to understand the harm or benefit because, again, we're starting out with a sicker cohort and then we end up with poorer outcomes and we potentially bias 
providers from offering those therapies at more opportune times and earlier in the course uh, and wind up, again, sort of in this vicious cycle. But we do have data that shows us that these patients do um, pretty comparably to their non-congenital counterparts. When we look at data, uh, even in you know isolated heart transplants, we see that short-term mortality is higher in congenital patients, um, but late survival is actually better. And this is regardless of prior surgical status. And they see that benefit at the end of the first year, and it improves further you know, 10 years post-transplant. So this is a really important population of patients to be thinking about moving forward um, because we're going to be seeing more of them. And I think that there's a lot more potential for really positive outcomes uh, as we refine our techniques for surgery and risk stratification. We can have a lot of positive impact. I think that was really, really well said in that we are trying to apply technologies to these patients with congenital heart disease where it requires some permutation from the initial protocol or some permutation from the initial way that the technology was designed. And I think that's something that um, congenital heart disease as a field has sort of required, even despite being sort of pioneering in several things like percutaneous valves. You know, we oftentimes feel like we are trying to figure out how best to repurpose technologies for these patients with non-traditional anatomies. And at the same time, on the other, you know, and you have to think, okay, well, I'm talking about repurposing a technology. We're talking about something that, you know, potentially the risk is increased because there's non-traditional use. And we have to sort of make sure that that is clear to the patient, and that they understand the seriousness of the situation and respect what their wishes might be in terms of proceeding with extreme measures and, you know, how much is too much and, you know, where is their understanding with their current physiology? I'm sure that's something that crossed your mind. Yeah, Josh, it definitely did. And I think this case really highlights the importance of goals of care discussion with ACHD patients, which is an increasing topic of interest and actually in 2020, a position paper was put out regarding this between a European and American ACHD societies. And in it, they cited several surveys that were done of ACHD patients. And what they found is that these goals of care discussions are rarely discussed in routine ACHD clinic visits. And most providers wait until the clinical condition has advanced significantly before starting this conversation. However, the surveys showed that most ACHD patients want to discuss advanced care early before the disease progresses, but on the other hand, there was a population that simply didn't want to know. And I think this shows how important it is to really have a conversation with your patient about their preference of how they want to do this. Do they want to know as far ahead as they can, or do they want to take it just as it comes? And it also showed that the ACHD patients preferred to have this discussion with their ACHD provider, citing an already established and trusting relationship. As we saw in this case, they can meet a lot of providers when they tend to get sicker. But since they already have an established relationship with the ACHD provider, that's who they want to have this conversation with. And I think, you know, for us as ACHD providers, it's difficult to look at a young asymptomatic patient who's doing well, planning their life events like a wedding, going to school, and then having this conversation about what are we going to do if and when you become sicker. But these surveys really show that this is what our patients want and need from us. So it's really important to start this conversation early and then keep it an ongoing process as developments in their life or clinical status may change their goals over time. Anika, you know, I, um, you know, I know that you, as somebody else who's an ACHD fellow and we've gotten to know each other over time, I know you also, you know, value this relationship and kind of understand its importance in the field and, uh, you know, both for our patients, you know, for the healthcare system, just globally. Um, you know, so I know that, you know, you have those thoughts as well. Yes, definitely. They're a special population and I know it can be challenging to take care of them and require a lot of out-of-the-box thinking, but it is really a privilege to take care of them and get to know them. And I really hope more people in cardiology get interested in helping take care of them. Yeah, me too. We definitely an ACHD uh, workforce. And so, yeah, you know, for any of our listeners, ACHD is a, is a great fellowship. It's a very rewarding, um, you know, pathway for me so far. 
And I know several others who feel the same way. So, and you know, I know you know other fields in cardiology probably think the same thing, but I think we're just right personally. So thank you guys today for, um, for number one, taking us down the battery and getting us some fried seafood, but also, um, telling us about this case, which is one that I know I'll reflect on. I'm sure is one that you guys have reflected on because I think there's a lot to learn here. And, um, you know, it also is potentially a sign of things to come in some of our patients. And so with that, I wanted to ask, um, Anika, Peyton, and Shang, each one of you, what makes your heart flutter about cardiology? Because we're interested in hearing more about you and kind of, uh, what drives you and in, in your future and your career. Josh, for me, it's anytime I see a patient who needs a drawing to have their anatomy explained because they don't have the normal cardiac anatomy. That is a fantastic answer, given your background. I really like that. I know about your interest in, uh, in art more broadly, so I think that's actually uh, very fitting. Peyton? For me, what makes my heart flutter about cardiology, I think, are sort of courageous innovations in interventional and structural cardiology for congenital repairs and palliations and the sequelae that come from those. No, I, I think that's hugely true, both inside and outside of congenital heart disease. There's a lot of very interesting innovation on the horizon in cardiology broadly. And Shang? I guess I'll comment on a particular moment, which is uh, an intersection of the two therapies that we provide in advanced heart failure. What makes my heart flutter is feeling a patient's pulse for the first time if they've had a VAD and they eventually get a transplant. That gets me every time. Wow. That, I mean, what a profound moment. I can imagine that's definitely a fulfilling thing and definitely um, something I would hold on to as a heart failure physician too. And so with that, I, I want to thank everybody for joining us here today. I really appreciate the opportunity to get some further discussion about congenital heart disease. In these cases where heart failure meets congenital heart disease, which is something that I know a lot of our patients face. Um, thank you very much for listening, Cardio Nerds. And if you're interested in this, please tune in to the ACHD series that is um, rolling out now for further information about both different types of congenital heart disease careers in congenital heart disease, and some of what we feel like our patients experience. Hey everyone, Dan Amender here. Now that was a spectacular masterclass discussion. And now allow me to introduce a dear mentor and friend of mine, Dr. Brian Houston. Dr. Houston is an advanced heart failure specialist at MUSC, beloved medical educator, and he's going to provide the expert cardio nerds perspective and review for this episode. Dr. Houston, take it away. Hi, Cardio Nerds colleagues. This is Brian Houston here, and I'm thrilled to be invited to discuss this interesting complex case and very complex and evolving field of mechanical circulatory support and specifically durable ventricular assist devices in adult congenital heart disease patients. I want to thank my colleagues, Anika and Peyton and Shang, for doing such a wonderful job of delineating not only the facts of the case, um, but all the subtleties involved in this patient's care and really using this as a springboard to highlight the multiple issues and challenges that this patient population faces, particularly as it intersects and interfaces with mechanical circulatory support, specifically durable VADs. I want to highlight and delve deeper into a few of the learning points that have already been made. First, and this was well discussed in the case, is the seemingly near universal subtlety of presentation for young patients with chronic heart failure who present with shock and malperfusion. And this goes double for the patient with adult congenital heart disease. These patients, specifically ACHD patients, have spent their whole life uh, living in an altered circulatory state of some sort or another. And they're often very well adapted to living in what at first glance seems to be seemingly impossible anaerobic state. They will not present the same way that a patient with acute myocardial infarction shock or even an older patient with long-term non-ischemic cardiomyopathy presenting with shock. Absent will be many of your telltale physical exam findings or foot-of-the-bed assessment where you think, gosh, this patient is in trouble. And it really requires a very sensitive antenna on the part of the clinician to suspect malperfusion 
shock or worsening heart failure in these patients with ACHD. If we look at the data, it bears this out. One of my mentors told me these patients take a long time to develop symptoms, but once they develop symptoms, it's a short time to reach an outcome. Our one study showed that once a patient with a systemic right ventricle experiences heart failure symptoms, they have a 50% mortality, transplant, or death rate at only two years. And so while many of our patients without adult congenital heart disease or specifically systemic right ventricles, you know, we may follow for 5, 10, 15 years with New York Heart Association class 2 or even 3 symptoms, the development of symptoms in these patients should be taken as a warning bell of alarm and prompt a consideration of risk stratification. Now, speaking of that, that is also quite subtle as uh, some of our traditional metrics like echocardiogram can be difficult in systemic right ventricular patients where numbers like ejection fraction can be hard to kind of put into context quantitatively and often invasive hemodynamic assessment is required. Cardiopulmonary exercise testing can, of course, be useful and useful to follow over time. But even then, knowing where our cut points of concern are, it's not quite as clear as our systemic left ventricular uh, patients, adult patients with ischemic or non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. So in kind of, kind of to recap this first learning point, you really have to have a very attuned kind of set of antenna to look out for illness and worsening clinical status in these patients with ACHD and specifically systemic right ventricle uh, anatomy. And also think through how early you want to approach risk stratification. Now, if you have a patient who presents uh, with a poor risk stratification profile or as in the case of this patient with cardiogenic shock, you need to think through your advanced therapy options. I think for most of us at centers where transplant is an option, transplant is almost always the first option. Long-term outcomes with transplant compared to ventricular assist device, even in these patients, and we'll go into that a little later, but even in these patients, our long-term outcomes are better with transplant. But as opposed to ventricular assist device, transplant is, of course, a limited resource. And we are called to be great stewards of uh, this limited resource as we think through the thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands of patients with advanced heart failure who may benefit from transplant. We are always thinking of what are the outcomes going to be and how are we going to get the most life years uh, out of these organs. And traditionally, patients with ACHD have statistically worse early post-transplant survival outcomes. One study showed that the 30-day mortality for ACHD patients undergoing heart transplant was as high as 17%. And this was compared to 7% for all non-ACHD patients. As pointed out in the case, however, long-term outcomes for these patients actually surpass our non-ACHD patients. If you go out to 10 years, so at a decade, the 10-year mortality for ACHD patients undergoing transplant is only about 40 to 41%, whereas for the non-ACHD patients, it's approaching 50%, about 49%. This likely has to do with a significant age difference. Of course, our ACHD patients tend to be younger when they approach advanced heart failure therapies. And age is a a great uh, risk mitigator when it comes to looking at long-term outcomes. Furthermore, it's likely that within the population of ACHD patients who undergo transplant, that palliated single ventricle populations, such as uh, Glenn or Fontan procedures uh, patients, they, they may disproportionately drive early poor outcomes. And I think this makes sense when we think of all of the medical comorbidities that can accompany late-stage Fontan physiology, including liver disease, protein-losing enteropathy, and significant pulmonary pathology. It is a challenge as we think through as a field of heart failure and heart transplant experts How do we think through organ allocation when it comes to patients with adult congenital heart disease? On the one hand, these are young patients. We can offer long-term benefits. As I said, if you go out past a year, uh, these patients tend to do 
quite well compared to our non-ACHD patients. However, early outcomes are poor and the stewardship call is strong when comparing early outcomes. In 2018, the United uh, Network of Organ Sharing, or UNOS, uh, rolled out a new allocation system for heart transplant. And I think the data is still a bit mixed as to how this has affected the ACHD population. In general, patients with temporary mechanical support devices, including ECMO, are prioritized at statuses one and two, while ACHD patients are listed largely at status four. Now, there does exist an exception mechanism uh, where you can uh, apply and petition for an exception for higher status. You don't meet the traditional status criteria. Uh, and programs in UNOS are working through how do we approach these patients. One early study after the allocation scheme change showed that it may have improved waitlist time and mortality for ACHD patients, but post-transplant outcomes are still a bit murkier. So for the second learning point, I think again, highlighting that transplant is a first option if possible, but we have to balance comorbidities and our call to be good stewards of organs as we approach ACHD patients thinking through the entire heart failure landscape. I'm almost certain that changes over the next half decade to a decade will occur in organ allocation, and we need thoughtful leaders to help think through how do we approach ACHD patients when we're thinking of organ allocation and heart transplant in the future. So for our patient, transplant was not an option given the significant comorbidities, including liver disease. So we thought creatively about how to offer durable mechanical circulatory support with a ventricular assist device. Now, this is a non-traditional or unusual way to approach patients, particularly with a systemic right ventricle. If you look at you know different uh, Intermax uh, registry queries, there's one from Cedars and Vanderplume, which covered the era of 2006 to 2015 and found that only 45 patients with systemic right ventricular anatomy had undergone isolated ventricular assist device implant. And it seems to have gotten increasingly rare in the, in our most recent published Intermax registry report spanning a decade from 2012 to 2021, only 28 patients had received what was termed an isolated RVAD. Unknown if these were predominantly systemic right ventricular patients or biventricular patients with traditional anatomy that had isolated RV failure. But to put that 28 patients in context, that stacks up against 27,000 plus isolated left ventricular assist devices. So this is not traditional. And you really have to consider multiple things as you approach these patients. Just like transplant, you have to think through, do they have end organ dysfunction, which serve as contraindications, or would make the implant of this device more dangerous or more likely to hurt the patients than not? and specifically looking at liver, kidney, and lungs. We know that many of these patients can have pulmonary hypertension. Some of these patients have, as this patient did, uh, pulmonary artery stenosis, and some patients can have bronchiolar difficulties as well. It's also true that many of these patients have undergone repeat sternotomies. As Anika pointed out, and their team did great detective work on, you really do want to make sure that that history is accurate as it's easy for kind of chart mythology to be perpetuated. But it, we do know that repeat sternotomies serve as a significant risk for worse outcomes after a durable ventricular assist device implant. In fact, in the recently published HeartMate 3 risk score, one of the only six factors which uh, factored into that score and proved an independent risk factor was a prior sternotomy offering a, a hazard ratio of 1.7 or a you know, risk of uh, increase of 70% for poor outcomes, including mortality at a year. It was also well highlighted during the case discussion that anatomic concerns for systemic right ventricular patients predominate. The right ventricle is, is not uh, conical or bullet-shaped like the left ventricle. These ventricular assist devices are designed and optimized from a flow dynamics and inflow calyp perspective to sit in or near the apex of the left ventricle. 
And so the lack of a true apex and the odd shape that even these dilated right ventricles can take on can present a real challenge. This case highlighted that with the unfortunate poor outcome that the patient had later as her inflow cannula ultimately ended up pointed directly at the interventricular septum. And we simply could not run the pump fast enough to offer appropriate hemodynamic support to keep her in a perfusing state. You also have to take into account whether there's any shunting from the subpulmonic chambers to the systemic chambers, such that once you offload those systemic chambers, you'll have systemic hypoxia. And so careful consideration and imaging is required for that. And also the deep trabeculations of the right ventricle can lead to both difficulties in finding an easy place to put the inflow cannula where it's unobstructed, but also can lead to thrombosis occurring in that systemic right ventricle, which can then be ingested, leading to pump thrombosis or systemic arterial embolization, such as stroke. I think the tricuspid valve is a very interesting anatomic consideration to discuss as well. Our patient had severe tricuspid regurgitation, and as was highlighted in the case, this is an especially concerning finding in the failing systemic right ventricle. We typically think from a left ventricular side that left ventricular assist devices will obviate or greatly reduce mitral regurgitation, but it may not be the case for the systemic right ventricular patients due to the anatomic concerns and potential for suboptimal unloading that can occur uh, with ventricular assist device implantation. And so a lower threshold to provide tricuspid repair replacement may be required. One case series by Gonzalez and colleagues reported that in around 2017, they completely switched to offering universal tricuspid valve replacement for these patients, and they seem to see better outcomes. We certainly don't have any randomized uh, or even high-level controlled uh, um, observational clinical data, Uh, but I think a consideration when thinking through this with our surgeons is, is this a patient that we want to offer or think, think about a tricuspid valve replacement or repair? Another concern is a very simplistic one, but a very important one is just fitting the device into the chest. Some of these patients uh, are younger and can be, of course, smaller. And the right ventricle is an anterior structure. And as it starts to dilate, can abut the sternum and finding a place to fit these devices in, in a way that can unload the systemic right ventricle and offer perfusion is a challenge. Uh, Previously, we had multiple devices on the market, including the Medtronic HVAD, but that device has been taken off the market due to outcome concerns, but it was a less bulky device than the HeartMate 3. Though the two are very similar and the HeartMate 3 has multiple physiologic and outcomes advantages, one of the advantages of the HVAD is that it just had a smaller profile and may have offered slightly more flexibility for these patients where space was at a premium. So for this teaching point, these are very complex patients and you have to consider whether their end organs or anatomy offer contraindications. You have to think about their repeat sternotomies and risk factors. And you have to think through where that ventricular assist device is going to go and whether you can anticipate that it's going to offer appropriate hemodynamic support for the patient. And so far, I've talked a lot about the challenges uh, and maybe the cons to considering ventricular assist device implantation in these complex patients. But of course, there are, there are pros or pluses as well. These are often very young patients and uh, they have a lot to live for. And we have many years of life that we can hopefully offer them. If you can reverse some of their other contraindications to transplant by offering ventricular assist device as a bridge therapy, this provides an amazing both quality and quantity of life to a very needy population who have really very few other options. As a physiologic plus, the subpulmonic left ventricle, and this was pointed out in the case, this is a ventricle that, that should be happy. We spend a lot of hours worrying in our patients who are getting traditional left ventricular assist devices, how the right ventricle is going to to handle it once we put it under some extra load and ask it to do more. 
but the supplemonic left ventricle should be able to tolerate that quite well. So in summary, I think approaching these patients with adult congenital heart disease and specifically systemic right ventricle, when approaching them for durable ventricular assist device, it really takes what one of my mentors called uh, the three C's, courage, creativity, and communication. We have to think through what these patients have to gain. Young patients, uh, often with many years of life, hopefully in front of them, and the potential to bridge to transplant offer a great promise of therapy. You do have to be creative. And I think you have to be creative in a multidisciplinary fashion. It does not work to just treat these patients with kind of one expert or surgeon thinking through them. You have to get everybody in the same room, in the same space, talking through the risks, the benefits, the approach, how we're going to handle complications before and after. And I think this was well highlighted in this case. And without that, the patient wouldn't have had even the early success that they did have. And finally, and Anika pointed this out in the case as well, you have to have clear-eyed communication with everyone on the team. And that includes the patient and their caregivers, who are the most important members of the team. They have to know what they're getting in for, what the risks are, and importantly, what the other options are, whether these options include palliation uh, or other approaches to try and help treat their worsening heart failure. So with that, I'll say again, thank you to uh, the Cardio Nerds and to my colleagues, Peyton, Shang, and Anika. Great job discussing this case. It was an honor to be asked to be an expert discussant for it and to take care of this patient and others alongside you. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to another Cardio Nerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Adriana Maris, intern in the Cardinerds Academy, House Chalcic, and student researcher at Yale Medicine. I invite you to check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode informative, please consider subscribing to Cardinerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All Cardinerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardinerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split.